It's Mosquito Spraying Week here at Acquiring Minds. Coincidentally, two guests I wanted to interview both bought resales in the Mosquito Joe franchise system and at around the same time. Today's guest is Jesse Sunquist. If you've been listening to Acquiring Minds for a while, you'll remember Jesse from this time last year. I had had him on to expand on a thoughtful essay he'd published online about being one year into his full-time search, but not having found a business to buy. One of the things he talked about then, and we hit on again today, is how his search criteria needed to evolve. With a wife and two kids, now three, he wasn't going to move for his search, and in a market without a lot of deal flow, he realized he needed to relax his SDE criteria and be open to smaller businesses in the 300,000 SDE range. That did the trick. Jesse found and closed on this Mosquito Joe resale a few months later. Today, Jesse and I revisit his challenging search and talk about what life is like today as owner-operator of a small blue-collar business within a franchise network. Ever thoughtful, Jesse brings tons of observations and reflections. A theme to listen for in today's episode, and Thursdays with my other guest who bought a Mosquito Joe franchise, is how both of them have designs on growing their businesses by buying more territories something that being in a franchise system makes relatively smooth. A.J. Wasserstein at Yale School of Management calls this strategy programmatic acquisition. Very soon after Jesse's acquisition, he experienced firsthand the potential in the strategy. Okay, and on Thursday, you'll hear from Neil Finneran, who also bought a Mosquito Joe franchise resale some months ago. Neil is a former hedge fund guy, a former CFO, so as you can imagine, he too has lots of reflections about this new professional path. Okay, please enjoy this conversation with Jesse Sunquist, owner of a Mosquito Joe territory in New Jersey. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. Jesse Sunquist, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me back. Jesse, you came on the podcast last fall, 2022. You had been searching for a business to buy for a year, but didn't yet have your deal. And you wrote an essay reflecting on 
your psychology after a year of searching full-time, your process and kind of the evolution of your search and your process. And you posted this essay on SearchFunder. It got a lot of attention and I invited you on to walk us through these reflections. It was really a great episode, a great essay. Um, So of course I will be linking to that in the show notes. But happily, some months after that, you did find a business to buy. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. The end of your search story and the beginning of your story as the owner operator of a business. But please start us off, Jesse, with a reminder of who you are and why you decided to buy a business in the first place. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, my my story really starts in the pandemic where, um, you know, we all got sent home. We we're working remotely. Uh, I had two small kids at the time. My wife and I were trying to work at home and uh, manage the kids. And uh, it was just a disaster, right? Like it was super stressful. We were watching the kids during the day, staying up to midnight or later to catch up on our corporate jobs. And, you know, it just wasn't the lifestyle that we wanted. And, um, you know, during that time, I had found out about uh, ETA, Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition. It sounded really interesting. So I started, you know, devouring books and podcasts and I uh, was introduced to SearchFunder and started going on there. And, you know, uh, was just thinking about it more and more and thinking like, hey, I think this is a viable path um, for for me and my family in the future, right? To own an asset that we have, you know, control over, you know, how hard we work dictates how, you know, the output, um, how much money we can make, um, but also like give me some flexibility as well, uh, because that's really what we were struggling with was not having enough flexibility to be with our family with two parents that were working like pretty intense corporate jobs. So I was a, a tire kicker for a long time, probably like nine to 12 months was just, you know, doing a little networking, reading things, you know, filling out lead forms on biz by sell, maybe getting a reply. Like every time I got a SIM, I was so excited and I would dig into it, but I would never call the broker and, you know, didn't really take much action. But, um, you know, became more and more disillusioned with my corporate job and um, just becoming more and more convinced about ETA being a viable path that um, I decided, hey, if I was going to really take this seriously, like I needed to pursue it on, on a full-time basis and, and not do it sort of like part-time with my job. It wasn't really allowing me um, much time to search during the day. Uh, in the evenings, I was watching kids, so I couldn't really do it in the evenings. Um, so, you know, my wife and I had a conversation. We um, looked at our personal finances and our situation. We were living with our in-laws at the time, um, which, you know, helped financially. And uh, we decided that I was going to quit my job and pursue search uh, full-time for at least a year um, and give it a really a fair chance. And then we'd sort of like reassess at the one-year mark if I was making enough progress, if I was still interested, if I thought I could get a deal done. Um, and if, you know, if worst case scenario was I could always go back and get another corporate job, but I wanted to give search at least a year uh, to give it a fair chance. And um, and two quick follow-ups to that, Jesse. The first is what in what capacity was your corporate job? What was your background, your, your, your field? Yeah, I mean, I, I started out my career as an auditor. I worked for Ernst & Young for five years. Um, and then I sort of worked my way out of the back office and I kept on getting I kept on getting closer to the front office, right? So I went into finance and accounting uh, from there. Then I went into operations. I managed a small team of client managers. Uh, then my last role was at a small software company uh, where I was doing uh, sort of like deal desk um, contract negotiation work for large software contracts. Okay. And so... It sounds like your motivation to buy a business was more about flexibility than it was about building wealth. Yeah. Respond to that. Is yeah, that, that that's accurate. That's absolutely correct. Um, you know, something that I've uh, reflected on a lot when I started my search was just how, you know, personal it is. Like everybody's motivations are different. Um, everybody's, you know, why as to why they're doing this is different. And, you know, it gets very easy to, you know, compare you know, play the comparison game with other people or other success stories. But, you know, they have a different reason for doing things. They may have a different 
um, you know, yeah, different sort of like end game. I was actually listening to an episode this morning that you did recently where a guy was talking about IPOing his company that he bought, right? Mm, um, yep. Which is which Gosh, is awesome. It's it's incredible. Um, but you know, that wasn't my motivation, right? It was more around um, flexibility and yes, yes, wealth building in the long term, but at least in the short term, having um, you know one parent be more flexible um, mm -hmm. with the with the ultimate end goal goal of you know three to five years from now, having enough sort of like financial uh, mobility where the other parent can sort of like back away from their intense corporate job and, you know, spend their time differently and not be, not have as much stress to be forced to make a certain level of income to, you know, uh, maintain a lifestyle. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a, a little bit here, Jesse, but I'm struck that you keep talking about kind of your wife as the one with the intense corporate job, as if jumping into a small business is not going to be intense, as if you're <laughs> going to have this, you know, this breezy professional life that gives you all this flexibility. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we will definitely yeah. get there. But like, you know, she made, you know, sacrifices for over a year while I was searching. And then, you know, she had to make more sacrifices, um, you know, uh, in my first year of ownership, because you're right, it's not a walk in the park when you, you know, step into being a new business owner. But uh, we're figuring it out, and she's super supportive, and I couldn't do it without her. Great, great. And she's, of course, still working really hard herself in whatever mm -hmm. her job yep. is. Yeah. Yep. Okay, Jesse. So, so returning to the plot, so you, uh, you guys together decide that this will be your path, and you get serious. You go full time on your search. You quit your W two, and give us just real quick, like take us up to the moment that you wrote that essay. Yeah, it was a, the, the first year was a slog. Um, you know, it's every bit as difficult as people make it describe or, or you know, people describe it. And, um, you know, I, I forget if I mentioned this in my essay or not, but um, I was actually under LOI within probably like two months for my first deal. Uh, and I was like over the moon, hey, this isn't supposed to happen this quickly. Like so excited. Um, it fell apart within the first two weeks of diligence. Um, but it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because, you know, getting under LOI, doing some preliminary diligence, talking to a bunch of bankers about an SBA loan, um, I just learned so much from that first experience. And it really prepared me for, you know, the next, uh, you know, 12 to 16 months of my search before I closed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my I think my, my first year to 14 months was a little atypical because I actually had my third kid um, during that time. And, you know, after after we had our third kid, um, I like, I didn't do anything for probably six weeks. Right. <laughs> I was just exhausted. Um, and so I, uh, uh, yeah, I just, I was just trying to keep up with the family. And, um, once I sort of got myself out of, uh, out of a hole of, you know, changing diapers and stuff like that, I kicked it into gear again a couple months later. And that's sort of like phase two of my, uh, of my search because phase one was getting this deal under LOI, having it fall through. Um, the, the, the deal that fell through was a remote bookkeeping, uh, company. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a great little business. Uh, and after that, you know, I was like, man, like this, this is so good. Like, why don't I just like build this from scratch, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to like buying one. And so mm -hmm. I, I, you know, went down the rabbit hole of probably six weeks uh, about like thinking about and potentially launching my own, you know, bookkeeping company instead. And I got to the finish line and I just, I couldn't pull the trigger. There was something about doing a solo effort by myself um, to launch something new that just didn't feel right. And once again, back to my why, like I didn't quit my job to like start something from scratch. I'm not really like a zero to one type of guy. I'm like a, I'm more of an optimizer. And uh, I think I knew that about myself, which was really holding me back from, from going, going about something uh, by myself. Um, mm -hmm. So I put that aside, had my third kid, took some time off and then, um, you know, was sort of rejuvenated to kickstart my search again after that. Mm -hmm. 
And and so where where are we now? What month are we in now? Um, calendar month. Uh, probably like February. So I quit my job in August of 2021. We're now in February 2022. Okay. All right. And then the the essay comes out what? Probably July. Yeah, probably July. I was I was coming up on that 12 month mark. Um, and at that point, I had you know one LOI fell fall through. I had you know three offers that were not accepted. Um, and I had a fourth offer that um, I was down the path of um, you know negotiating the LOI. Felt really good about the seller, about the broker. You know, I was very excited about it. But then, um, as we're negotiating the LOI, the seller's accountant finds out about the sale, and uh, he's like, "Whoa!" He's like, "You're not going to make enough money from this to retire." He's like, "You got to work for another couple of years." And uh, and so the broker pulled the listing, and um, you know, an unfortunate outcome. It's happened to a lot of other people before and uh, i think the broker was actually like this this broker was was really good um you could tell he felt like a little embarrassed by it because he's a experienced broker and he probably should have you know known better but um yeah, yeah it happened and so i had to pick myself up and, and keep looking up for the next deal mm-hmm. um, I, I should i should clarify that you know a big thing that was different about my search than others was geography was my number one criteria um, you know, I, my wife and I had bought a house. My kids are in the school system. You know, I was not looking across the country to, for any good deal. I was going to pick up and move. And so I started with a two hour radius from my house. And, um, after a one site visit two hours away, I reduced it to a one hour uh, radius from my house. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, so that was, that was the biggest sort of constraint in my search, um, which was good because it helped me focus, but it was also super frustrating because I felt like anything above half a million of, of SDEs, like I had looked at three times. Right. Yeah. And uh, it ended up being me trying to like force fit deals that I should have passed on into my criteria because it was within an hour of my house. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, and that's that's sort of the uh, the wrong the wrong reason. Um, and so I had to sort of change my criteria. And so I, I reduced the floor from 500K to 300K STEs. And uh, I found out there's a lot more deals in the 300K space. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was that was super helpful. But it became, I had to be a little more cr- critical in my thought to think, okay, it's 300K now. Are you buying a job or is this something that you think you can really you know, grow uh, in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, but I suspect that you were comfortable with buying a job, at least in the, in the immediate term. Oh, so yeah. yes, buying a job, but then yeah. you could see a path to growing into something Correct. where it's Am no I buying a job, job in perpetuity or can this actually grow and scale to be something where I can you know, work my way out of a job and, and make it be something yeah. bigger? And you were in... Jersey, uh, but geographically like a good two hours from New York sort of Uh, thing. No, I'm like, I'm like an hour South of New York city. I'm in Monmouth County. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But still like for people who maybe don't know that region super well, it's, you're not in a super urban area, even though you're only an hour from New York. So the deal flow is pretty light. Yep. Yep. So a year comes and goes, you're feeling frustrated. Your wife is probably like, dude, we said it, we agreed to a year, you know, what, 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 what now? She actually wasn't, she actually wasn't pushing me to stop at all. She was still very supportive. Um, I was pretty frustrated, um, after the first year, cause I realized just how hard it is to get any deal done. Like how many things have to come together, um, to successfully close a deal. Um, I actually went through and went very far along the process of applying for another W2 job, which, um, that job I think would have been good. Um, but after the final round of interviews, they were like, Hey, sorry, we're doing a hiring freeze, like not going to work out. And so, you know, I was disappointed about not getting a job that I thought I could actually do well. Um, I looked at a bunch of other corporate jobs and just, you know, wasn't excited about any of them. Um, and Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with, uh, 
um, an older guy, I wouldn't call him a mentor, but an older guy who had some perspective. He's just like, look, quitting your corporate job was a really big step. Like, I would just encourage you to remind yourself why you did it. And if all those reasons are still valid, like, just give it a little more time. Um, and then that was the exact advice that I needed at the time, because I was like, yeah, like, all those reasons why I quit, they're still valid. Like, why would yeah. I go back to a corporate job that I wasn't excited about? Um, and it was, it was literally a matter of weeks after that conversation where I got an email from a broker, just one of their regular email blasts, and they had a uh, franchise pest control company um, included on it. And, you know, I had never considered franchises before. Um, so I decided to be a little more open-minded and it looked, it looked too good to be true, right? Like the multiple that they were talking about and the purchase price based upon the earnings, it looked too good to be true. So I was like, this can't be real. Something's wrong with it, but whatever, I'll just go, you know, inquire about it. Um, so I, you know, gave them a call, requested more information and, um, you know, every, every conversation I had sort of like checked out, eventually got to meet with the seller. Um, he was a, you know, the perfect seller profile, this guy in his mid sixties who was looking to retire and you know, uh, pass on his legacy to a capable pair of hands. So I checked the box there and, um, yeah, everything sort of checked out. And, um, you know, despite the fact that, um, it was franchised, um, it wasn't really a deterrent cause I had many conversations with the franchisor. I had many conversations with other owners in the network and, uh, every other owner that I spoke with, you know, I asked them the same, the same question at the end of the call, like, Hey, would you recommend, you know, me doing this? Uh, and they were all like, yes. Um, you know, they, wow. no, nobody had any regrets about, you know, the franchise or they had some, you know, cautions and concerns, but, uh, you know, nobody really, you know, tried to talk me out of it. Um, and were these franchisees that the franchisor had introduced you to, you, you always wonder if the franchisor is going to cherry pick the references that they put you in touch with. Uh, only one was, uh, the nice thing about franchises is there's, they're super transparent. Like there's a thing called an FTD franchise disclosure document, which is almost always public. You know, there's some state um, websites you can go to get them if they operate in them states. And uh, in the back of every FDD is every single owner along with their contact information. So it's super easy just to pick up the phone and, you know, cherry pick and start calling people. Uh, even if you don't know anything about them, I can know that like, hey, this person in Maryland owns five territories. Like, I'm going to give them a call because they probably have a pretty big business. And and you did that. You'd cold yeah. call them and say, hey, I'm looking at this territory in New Jersey. I'm sorry, I could be joining this network. Kind of, what do you think? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. And how many of those calls did you have? How many franchisees did you talk to? I probably talked to like four or five on my own. And then um, they recommended one or two other ones. Mm -hmm. So that is so valuable. I mean, it, there, there, that, that's one of like three or four things about being in a franchise network that are just so incredibly valuable. And let, let's let's dwell on this, Jesse. Why? It's a theme that's come up many times on this podcast. People um, being kind of closed to doing a franchise and not even really considering it. And then either an, a franchise opportunity comes their way, a resale opportunity comes their way. And they look at just like you, they look at it and they're like, huh, well, what's not to like about this? Um, or something else opens their mind. They, they, they hear an interview with somebody who's done, who's bought a franchise resale or something else. And they just kind of take a second look at the entire concept and almost always warm to it. So that, that kind of opening of the mind, I find really interesting. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. 
These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. Why do you think that you were not considering or not open to franchise, buying a franchise resale initially? Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a good reason to be honest. It was really just the the sort of like stigma and stereotypes around franchises. Like, oh, like you're paying a royalty for what? Like, what is a franchisor providing? Like, are you really running your own business? They're telling you exactly what to do. Like, you don't have control over the brand. Like, it was all pretty stereotypical, like nonsense. Like, none of them are really good reasons, you know, why not to consider a franchise. Um, but the real opening of the mind, you know, came for me was, you know, I just, I met so many people in my in my search process. And uh, I just happened to meet so many multi-unit franchise owners that were running wildly successful businesses in a franchise network. Like some of them are doing seven-figure EBITDA like in a franchise, not on the food space. And I was like, that's like serious. Like these are these are businesses searchers would like kill for, you know, those earnings. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so I was like, man, if, <laughs> if they can do that in a franchise network, like maybe I shouldn't ignore them, you know? Um, you know, the number one thing with franchises is that you have to pick the right franchisor. And so like, and that's been written about a lot, but like, it's so, so true. And, you know, there's a lot you can get into around, like, if you want to buy into a small and emerging brand, you want to buy a mature brand somewhere in the middle, like once again, that becomes a sort of personal, um, a personal life decision. But at least for me, you know, Mosquito, so the, the franchise I bought is a Mosquito Joe's and uh, Mosquito Joe has probably like 350 plus territories. Um, so they're, you know, not in the thousands, but they're clearly mature. They've been doing it for a while. Um, Mosquito Joe, like three or four years ago was acquired by, um, Neighborly, which is a private equity backed franchise Holdco of 20 plus home service brands. So, you know, they, they may, they become successful on their own, right. They were acquired by a private equity firm and now they're under this private equity uh, umbrella. And, um, you know, so there's, there's credibility there, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that really, you know, um, that really was sort of comforting, comforting for me, right? I think in a different life stage, I would potentially consider buying into an emerging brand, buying five territories, and then rolling up the sleeves and building from scratch because you can build, you know, you can have a lot of, like it's a grind, but you can have a lot of success doing that with very little debt or, or much less debt than doing a full business acquisition. But, um, yep. you know, I was very clear that I needed, you know, cash flow or some sort of like income from day one. And so a franchise resale was really the only thing that I was considering. Yeah. And, and just the, the flip side of that is that, okay, you're, you're not taking on a lot of risk in terms of not needing to take a lot of debt, but where the risk is, is that you don't know that an emerging brand is necessarily going to be successful. It could sputter out. You just, I mean, you're the, the, the early orange theory franchisees couldn't predict the phenomenon that it would become. So lucky them and good on them. Um, but that that's where the risk is. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, I think my uh, my seller had owned this for six or seven years. I think he was like the second territory in New Jersey. So like oh. Mosquito Joe was not popular, you know, uh, or even like successful in New Jersey by the time he bought in, but he bought in in a really good time, right? Um, and I think, yeah, he bought in in a really good time and it worked out well for mm -hmm. him. 
Jesse, let's just return a little bit to your your loosening of your criteria around S- SDE, which you were basically forced to do based on the lack of deal flow because you were geographically constrained. This is something that comes up again and again and again, what size of business to buy. Your criteria had been what, five, 600,000 SDE and above? Yep. And it was just not happening. You you kept re- returning to the same deals. I mean, it was a really, really light deal flow trickle. And then, so just kind of give us a little bit more detail on that process of of going down to 300 and what changed and how you got comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I had to, right? Like if I wanted to get a deal done, like I I, I was approaching the year mark. And, um, you know, with that, actually, I think I changed to 300 before the year mark, but I got to a certain point where I felt like I had seen everything and I was just waiting for new deals to, you know, come on the market. And I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. It's not a good use of time. I don't have like an infinite sort of like waiting time. So I decided to look smaller, um, which unlocked a lot of new deals that I hadn't really considered. But I think, you know, like I was mentioning before, you really have to think through, is this going to stay 300-ish in perpetuity or can you actually like grow it, right? Um, Or do you think, is there the potential for it to become bigger? And, you know, in some cases it's no. Uh, and so then that's a sort of like hard pass. But um, I think in a lot of cases, it, it could be yes, right? Because there are, people have talked about this on Twitter and search funder all the time, right? There's a sort of like, to cross a million bucks in revenue is a um, is an accomplishment, right? And then it's like one to five or one to three, I forget what it is, is like another sort of like zone. And a lot of businesses can't get out of that zone, right? So you have to have confidence in yourself as an operator, but also look at the business model and how they're operating today and say like, okay, do I think I could get it out of this dead zone that they're in into the next level? Yeah. And and so when you came down to 300, 350 SDE and saw a lot more, the deal, that kind of unlocked deal flow, and you started looking at a lot of um, seeing more Sims and into more businesses, some of those you'd say to yourself, this thing really can't grow beyond this or it can't break, you know, it, the, the million dollar ceiling or the $3 million ceiling. And others you'd say, yeah, it could. Uh, I could definitely see this getting to, one, three, five million and beyond. And the Mosquito Joe territory checked that box. What 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 did what was its revenue at? Let's tie this in now to the business that, that you bought. What where was revenue for it and why did you see a path uh to growth in this business and not in some of the others that you looked at? Yeah. So, you know, I I didn't want just one territory, right? Like I was like, man, like just one territory that's, you know, with a franchise model, you're only given a certain territory that you can operate in, right? Which is good because you're not competing with the other Mosquito Joe franchise, you know, 50 miles away, but it's bad because you're limited to, like in Mosquito Joe, they call them targeted households, right? You're limited to a certain number of targeted households and you're only going to have enough penetration, right? So like, can I grow five to 10% a year? Yeah, but I'm not going to grow 40, 50% for three years because it's going to get saturated, you know? So the play with a franchise is always that, um, you know, it's so easy to do a roll-up in a franchise because everybody's using the same systems, CRMs, like processes. And so the play there is really like get in with a good territory that's providing you with enough sort of like SDEs, you know, your minimum amount of SDEs, and then see how you can um, grow within the network by acquiring other territories. So it was a little bit of a calculated bet, but once to your point earlier about franchises having a lot of transparency, you know, in the diligence process, I can see some of the weekly leaderboards that are published and you know, I can see like, wow, this territory in New Jersey is a top 10% individual territory in all of the Mosquito Joe's network, right? Mm-hmm. And in the FDD, you can say like, here, here's what the average revenue is per territory. I can see at the revenue, you know, that this guy's bringing in. I'm like, wow, it's significantly higher. This is a good territory, right? So I knew it was a well-performing territory and, and that was, um, that would give me a good sort of like 
foundation to operate from. And then it was a little bit of a calculated bet on, okay, in this um, not uber mature brand, but in this more mature brand, there's likely going to be other owners that are looking to retire in the next, you know, three to five years. And there's a good chance that once I'm in network, I'm a, you know, a known quantity. Um, I could be a very, um, you know, attractive buyer to another owner. Yeah. Well, Jesse, this is just this is just hitting on so many of the themes uh, of the franchise buying a franchise resale with the intent to roll up, basically. So Brian Beers talks about this a lot. He's been on the podcast with the Midas. He's the yep. guy who's bought so many Midas Midas locations around the Philly metropolitan area and beyond. Yep. And to your earlier point, which I, I meant to plug an episode of two weeks ago when you were talking about like once you've opened your mind to franchises and you think you want to buy a resale of a territory or a handful of territories or locations to then do programmatic acquisition and expand far beyond that, devoted a whole episode to that where we with uh, AJ Wasserstein, Mm. uh, Michael Horowitz and Peter Mistretta, who are AJ being a professor, the other two being actual exemplars of this uh, of this model. And the 10 questions you should ask yourself as you're like the framework to very systematically think through um, what franchise or to go with. So hard plug for that, uh, that episode. It's a, it's a really solid one and really, really helpful. Those guys crushed it. Um, so here you are, you, you are doing exactly that. You are going to buy a territory. You're looking at the potential of, you know, buying more territories in the future. You're looking at the age, you know, the demographics of existing owners and seeing that they're kind of boomerish, uh, and that there, there you'll be waiting for them when, when, when it's time for them to retire or pass on, pass the torch. I, I'm, I'm jumping around here a little bit, but one of the things you said was really interesting how a, a Mosquito Joe territory is, is, it's basically every territory has what? What did you say? A targeted number of households? Is that what targeted households yeah, is what the phrase household. was? Yep. So you can really, you can really see what the ceiling is here. So say the targeted households is a hundred thousand and you know, the, the monthly fee to a household is, I don't even know what it costs, a hundred dollars, let's call it. So that's what ten million dollars potential in the territory, and you say, well, I'm not, you know, that that's the kind of total addressable market, and then you say, I'm only ever going to get five percent or twenty five percent of the market. You could do some really quick napkin math to see kind of what the potential is of that uh, territory, but then of course you can say, okay, well, that times five, if I were able to get to five territories, or that times fifteen, fifteen territories. It's also interesting is that you can. This is so. I mean, you could just really, <laughs> you can really dissect this. It's very interesting. So you can not only look at, you know, kind of look at the territory that you're contemplating buying and seeing the targeted households there, but look at the immediate neighboring territories and see what those targeted households are. So you can almost not only just play the game of like, well, if I get to five and 10 and 50 territories, but you could actually look at like, well, if I do a contiguous play where I'm just getting the territories right around me, I mean, you can see right there in the FTD, right? What, I guess what their revenue is, maybe not what their targeted households is. So, I mean, are you doing all this analysis or am I, am I, is this like more than most, you know, am I overdoing it here? Um, no, you're, you're not off the mark. I think I did a lot more of that once I was in network and understood it a little bit better. Um, but yeah, you can absolutely, absolutely do math like that. I I don't think they post, you know, in the FDD, every, every franchisor is going to post different levels of information. Some post a lot, some post a little, um, Uh I think Mosquito Joe is, you know, they post an okay amount. They're not going to say like, I mean, I think they say, they may say the average revenue, they have like quartiles and average revenue per the top quartiles or whatever. So you're never going to mm-hmm. see like how much revenue each owner is doing, but they'll give you sort of okay. like averages. But if you know that okay. an owner has five territories, like 
and, the, and you can say what the average territory revenue is like oh well then you can sort of like guess at to approximately what their revenue is um you know back of the envelope type stuff yeah. but uh but yeah i mean i think i think they try to um they try to make the targeted households pretty consistent so if you're paying a franchise development fee of a certain amount of money they want to make sure that the playing field is level and so one person is not getting a hundred thousand you know targeted households for that cost and somebody else is getting twenty thousand households for that cost sure. right so they try to make it a little bit level, level playing field now. I don't know how that was, you know, six or six or eight years ago, but at least now you you know that if you have a territory, there's probably a similar number of targeted households. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you can do all sorts Very of math cool. around like penetration rate, average cost per spray, and stuff like that to say like, yeah, what is the potential of this? Is there anything more to say about why you like this business uh, and any of the parameters of the business? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's look, it's a simple business, right? It's not an easy business, but it's a simple business. You have. You have guys in trucks that complete a spray, right? Like, um, we don't go inside the houses. There's a couple other like auxiliary services, but our bread and butter uh, service is outdoor mosquito barrier sprays. And so, um, you you know, you come up with dense roots. You s- s- uh, set the guys up with materials. You send them out. Um, they complete the sprays and they come back. Right? It's it's not rocket science. You know what I mean? Like, it's very easy to learn. Um, you have, you provide a service that, um, customers are very happy with like mosquito Joe's whole thing is like make outside fun again. Right. And like, I've done the spray in my house, like it works, you know? And so like, we can actually go outside and not be bit by mosquitoes. And when people are happy with that, like they, they come back year after year. Right. And so like, we have very high retention rates. It's not recurring per se, like a, like a SaaS product, but like, um, you know, people are coming back year after year. We have very high retention rates. Um, referrals are our number one acquisition source. And so when people are happy, they tell their friends about it. So, um, you know, it, it's nice to get a referral versus having to pay hundreds of dollars for, a, you know, a pay-per-click ad, uh, even though we do that, obviously. But, you know, referrals is a number one lead source, which is really encouraging. And, uh, yeah, it's just not a hard business. Um, so that was attractive, mm-hmm. super high uh, gross margins, um, also attractive. And, um yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for, you know, roll up as well. And so like it, it, it has a lot of the characteristics that most searchers are looking for. Um, and so it sort of like, you know, fit the bill for me. And I think I got to a point in time in my diligence process and I was like, if I can't pull the trigger on this, like I'm never going to buy a deal, right? Like, did I want to be into like outdoor pest control? Like not necessarily, but I think there's enough like, um, there's enough attractive, attractive uh, areas of the industry and of the business itself that it's like, it's a great business to own. Yeah. A couple of follow-ups there, Jesse. You said it's actually not technically recurring. So I, I as you know, I talked to Neil Finneran. Mm-hmm. I've already, I've already recorded that interview. It will be airing around the same time as this one. Neil bought a territory in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts I guess. Yeah. I characterized his business as a recurring one, but it's actually, so it's actually not you, you don't have them on automatic billing your customers, or you so, only go when they call, or what's it like? What's that look like? So we we have a twenty one day cycle that we come out and treat, uh, but we don't have any contracts. And so like you know, most people will sign up and set it and forget it. We come out every twenty one days and they're happy. But you have some people that are like, oh, like I'm on a vacation for two weeks, like you know, skip this one, or like I'll just call you when when I want you to come out. And like those customers are are more annoying, but like you're not gonna say no to them, right? Um, but because we are non-contractual, people can start and stop whenever they want. Um, I have a hard time calling it recurring. But um, for the most part, you know, most people sign up for the regular barrier spray. And we come out every 21 days and treat your property until you tell us to stop or the season ends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of right on the edge of, of recurring. I guess it's kind of recurring, but your your customers have the option of having having it not be recurring. Yeah, yeah, and, and most of our customers are on auto pay with their credit card. So after we do the service, the credit card's charged. Like boom, like it's it's easy. But um, yeah, you know, you said that they're super high gross margins, but this is also a bit one of the things not to like about pest control is that the barriers to entry are pretty low. So you know, anybody with you know some spray equipment, some chemicals, and a truck is in business. So you'd think that there, like a lot of that margin would be competed away. So square that circle for me. Yeah, I mean, it's barriers to entries are low. Like you do have to be licensed to be able to um, buy the product that you need, but then also um, apply the product as well. Um, so, it, you know, you have to go through a licensing process to be able to do this, but it's not that difficult, right? And so like anybody can get licensed and then buy a truck and a blower and like be up in business. And so, you know, the competitive pressure does increase year after year. Um, which will probably, you know, push down gross margin over time. Um, but like I said, at least, you know, with, with referrals being the number one lead source, if you have a good customer base to work from, that just sort of like um, perpetuates the flywheel, right, of existing customers referring other customers, and then you're able to, you know, you have a little bit of a moat um, that way versus somebody who's starting out with a guy in a truck and is like, I'm just going to undercut Mosquito Joe um and you know get some market share and then they're really sort of like hustling it's going to take them years to really like sort of like eat away at us but like we do see yeah. it in certain areas you know one guy in a yeah. truck goes out there and you know tries to get you know, make a name for itself and undercuts our price and you know we do lose some customers like mosquito joe is will never claim to be the lowest cost provider nor will we ever be the lowest cost provider but uh you know we stand by our services and uh we do a good job and um like i said having a having a a good solid customer base to work from um, really you know, perpetuates the, the acquisition flywheel. Yeah, excellent. And tell us a little bit with a little bit more detail about what the business actually does. When you spray, what are you spraying? How does it work? Does it kill mosquitoes or is it just kind of something that keeps them away that they don't like the smell of or whatever? What's it? Give us a picture. Yeah, so uh, you know we have a couple different options, right? Our standard our standard spray is what they call a synthetic pesticide, which is you know a man made pesticide. Uh, we'll come out and treat uh, the perimeter of your property and all your foliage. And um, any mosquito that lands on uh, an area that's been treated, uh, it will die. Um, and so that's sort of like one aspect of it. We'll always treat any sort of like standing water that we see. And so if a mosquito lays eggs there, then the eggs won't be able to like hatch and grow into a, a full-grown mos mosquito. Um, we're, we're moving more towards what they call a um, botanical treatment, which is all, all natural, all organic uh, products. But because you have a bunch of all natural products that are mixed together, they can't be called organic anymore. They have to call it botanical. But essentially, it's essential oils and, and soaps, um, which also will kill mosquitoes as well. Um, and so we're trying to move more in that direction to be more eco-friendly. Uh, and then the third sort of you know treatment option that we have is is a just a repellent, right? And so um, you spray it. It's it's these. Um, yeah, different types of essential oils, which emits a aroma that will actually just drive the mosquitoes away, but won't kill them. Mm -hmm. And I assume the repellent is the least effective, un unhappily. Uh, yeah, I mean, the repellent, we have to actually come out every two weeks instead of every three weeks because it doesn't last as long. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's important to note, especially in, in certain areas of the country, that our, our treatment is effective for mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. And uh, in New Jersey and, and further north in uh, New England, ticks are a major concern. Um, and so a lot of our business at the start of the season and at the end of the season is because ticks are active anytime the weather is uh, greater than 55 degrees. And so we have some customers, our best customers, they're like, spray me the last week of March because I know it's going to be 50 degrees 
and don't stop until the end of October, right? Because mm-hmm. I have dogs and I live, you know, on the edge of the woods and I don't want them getting any ticks. Well, Jesse, this is a seasonal business as you, as you keep uh, alluding to, and we're kind of right at the end of the season here, I guess, October. So you haven't yet experienced a cycle of going through an off season. So you probably can't speak to it with, uh, with experience, but you're certainly, you were certainly thinking about that as part of your, as part of your decision-making process for whether or not to get into a seasonal business. How did you think about it? How are you thinking about it now? Yeah. So, I mean, my thinking has evolved, right? I mean, I think the, the most important thing is that it's doing, you know, 12 month revenue numbers in a seven to eight month period. Right. And so it's like, it's, it becomes a cash flow management exercise for me in the off season. Uh, more than anything else, because you know I'm doing the full year cash flow in a more condensed uh, time period. I think before I got started, I was you know I literally had a file on my phone. I was thinking about like what are some other businesses I can do in the off season to you know retain some employees, um, make some money, and you know really like grind it out for those four or five months. Um, I got to about the midway point of the season, and I'm like, I'm not doing any of that this year. In the future, maybe, but at least for now, like I'm I'm so looking forward to the opportunity to to work a little bit less. Um, you know, uh, spend some more time with my kids. And uh, and really, like, it becomes a planning exercise for what I want to do next season. I, I think the unique aspect of this business is that I'll have three or four months where I can reflect on what went well last season, what didn't go well, and what do I want to do differently. And then when I start up again next year, um, you know, I'm going to hire probably 50 to 60% of my workforce is going to be new in first year to Mosquito Joe. Uh, and so I can launch some things with them next year that they're just going to think is business as usual, but is actually like new and different for, you know, the 2024 season than how we operated in 2023. That I feel like is a kind of a profound difference between seasonal businesses and and not that the change management is less because you sneak in change. And if you're hiring new people every season, then they don't have to adjust to your changes or, or resist your changes. Now, Jesse, why are 50 to 60% of them going to be new? Is that just the nature? How are you projecting that number? Because I have to lay off all my entire workforce at the end of the year. And um, it's unfortunate, but like I can't, you know, if I'm not making money in the off season, I can't retain them on payroll. And so I have a couple of guys that um, they just go on unemployment in the off season and they'll come back, you know, next year. Um, Some guys, I have a a few college guys that I'm pretty bullish will come back next year because they've enjoyed themselves this season. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I had... At peak, I was probably at like 12 technicians this year. Um, four of them, actually five of them, came back from last year uh, to this year. And um, so I'm just assuming that, you know, similar, a similar number. I think now, Jesse, we can get into the how it's gone, basically. So so once you bought the business, well, I, I, before we do that, was there anything to say about the actual closing or, or deal negotiation? Actually, um, tell us tell us what the business was. Give us the, some numbers around the business. I don't think you've done that yet. Yeah. So um, the territory that I bought was doing just under a million dollars of revenue. And um, I'll say that, you know, I lowered my floor to 300K and it exceeded that, you know, um, from an, on an SDE basis. So that gives you, a, you can back into that math. Um, yep. The closing, you know, the closing was interesting because the seller really didn't want to run it again for another year. And because I had to get licensed in the off season, like, you can buy the business without being licensed, but you can't operate until you have your license, right? So we all knew that the season was going to close at the end of October, so we didn't want to close before the end of the season. But I needed to have enough time to buy the business and get licensed before I had to hire people and buy product next March, right? So that gave me a sort of like five-month window. Uh, well, we didn't close until the 
we got delayed. Uh, we didn't close till the end of December, like after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, we closed, uh, which that gave me about like three months to go through my Mosquito Joe training, get licensed, hire technicians, transfer all the trucks for the DMV, and do a whole bunch of other transition stuff um, so that I'd be ready to launch on day one. Now, I was fortunate in that like I didn't have a business to operate during that time, so I had a lot of time to focus on passing my exams, waiting in line at the DMV, and you know, doing some of those other things that would have been hugely distracting if I was trying to run a business at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was sort of like you know a little bit of a race against the clock, like, I didn't spend nearly as much time on season opening procedures uh, this year because I was spending all my time on like licensing procedures and transition procedures. So, yep. you know, I have a lot of ideas for things I can do differently to make me more efficient next year that I can do in, you know, January, February, March. Um, but I didn't have, just didn't have the opportunity to uh, this past year. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the one thing I did want to add was my thesis around rolling up Mosquito Joe's uh, territories um, started to prove itself very quickly. Um, like I said, I closed at, at the end of December. I got access, like they didn't give me a new email account. I got access to the owner's email account so I could see all the history. So of course I'm going through and like trying to learn as much as I can and reading things. And uh, I came across an owner in Pennsylvania whose territory is right across the river from mine. My office is right outside Trenton. So this guy was in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And uh, he actually reached out to my seller and he owned, owned his territory for probably six years. Um, he reached out to my seller and was like, hey, like, I'm super frustrated. I want out. Do you want to buy my territory? And um, of course, my seller was like in the process of selling his territory. So the conversations never went anywhere. But I follow the email thread and I figure out that like this guy's so frustrated. He's at the point of just returning the territory to Mosquito Joe and walking away with nothing. So I call him up and I said, hey, like I'm the new owner. I uh, took over from this guy. You know, I'm, I'm right next to you. Like, are you still thinking about getting rid of your territory? And he was overjoyed and he was like yes like i would love to get rid of it i don't want to give it back to mosquito joe like i can sell it to you blah 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 and so long story short we um you know he sent me some information i was able to look at it like the amount of revenue he was doing was irrelevant because this guy was a essentially an absentee owner he hired some people to manage it they did it really poorly he didn't really oversee it it was a really mismanaged territory but i knew i could see like what his target population was i could see the density of where the households were and I could see that the majority of his customers or the majority of his customer uh, targeted households was a 20 minute drive from where my office was. So I was like, I can run this out of the same, you know, I can run the trucks out of the same garage. I can run the office out of the same office. Like, boom, this is a slam dunk. So him and I negotiated a deal uh, pretty quickly um, where instead of walking away with nothing, he's going to walk away with something. Uh, we had a seller finance deal. And um, yeah, so I was able to acquire my second territory six weeks to two months after um, after I bought the first one. That, that's, God, what a stroke of luck. That's awesome, Jesse. And and so just to be clear, it was doing, you said kind of like a negligible amount of revenue? Like 150K or something like that. Okay. Uh, but that's still more appealing to buy those customers generating 150K than having it kind of go back to Mosquito Joe and then you g being granted the territory or whatever like it's still yeah. there's still enough of a business there that it was a, that that it's a head start into that territory yeah no definitely um yeah and i think like i said what it was doing before was kind of irrelevant because he wasn't actually working in the business but the fact that like i could take all of the overhead and like run it out of the same office was like yeah it was a no-brainer um and it really was about the potential of the territory versus what they were doing beforehand yeah um 
And I think the interesting thing is like that territory, that neglected territory would make no sense for a new buyer to sort of like buy. There wasn't enough there. But as a sort of like add on to an existing territory, we can just like fill in. It's, uh, it's a slam dunk. And not to mention you got it for a song. So it was fully seller financed. Yeah. Fully seller financed and a low price, presumably. Presumably. <laughs> That's great. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, and so, and did it all work? Did it all work out? So you said this happened right at the beginning of your tenure. So you've now had a season in both territories. Did it work out? Is the integration as easy as you'd hoped? Are you running it all out of the office that I see behind you? You know, over your shoulder there. Yeah, I mean, the thesis definitely panned out. I think the most challenging part was because it was in Pennsylvania and not New Jersey. That's a separate licensing um, district, and so now I have to go through the Pennsylvania licensing process, the New Jersey licensing process. I have to understand the differences between the two. Can I use the same technicians? Do I have to use, you know, do I have to get technicians duly licensed? So there's a whole bunch of stuff like that I had to figure out. And, you know, Mosquito Joe helps you out with it, but um, it's still just like a lot to sort of like keep that separate in your mind. Um, yeah. And, you know, fortunately, even though the territory was poorly managed, they did have one technician that came over with the sale. And this guy is a, is a rock star. He's been a total stud um, and really, you know, really helpful during the first year because, um, you know, going from a much smaller base, but that t territory has performed really, really well this year in its first year. And so do you envision if you bought a third territory that the you kind of just get better at it? It would be easier. You kind of know you've been through it once. You've got one rep under your belt. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I have, I had two returning office staff from last year, which has been great. And um, I asked, you know, one of the ladies recently, I was like, has it been really difficult, like having Pennsylvania and New Jersey, like how, you know, how much harder has it been this year versus last year? And she's like, it's no different, right? Like, it's the same CRM, like I can look up the same, like, yeah, the notes are worse in, the, in you know, in the Pennsylvania territory, but like, essentially to process a payment and to schedule them and do all that stuff, like it's no different. Um, yeah. So yeah, they, have, they haven't Amazing. felt overwhelmed by, you know, having that, those additional customers come over. You just mentioned how uh, Mosquito Joe will help you with some of the licensing and educating you on differences between two territories in different states. What else have you found being a franchisee? So now, now you know, that you're inside a franchise network and, and can really see the benefits or not of being inside a franchise network, what would you tell people uh, about your experience? So there's good and bad to it, right? Um, I will say like, I'll... I don't want to spend too much time on the bad because that's not really the point. But I think, you know, I came from the corporate world. So I know that there's, you know, I know how to smile when people want you to smile and, you know, uh, go attend things when you think that they're silly. And yeah, like there's a lot of that, that you have to sort of like hoops that you have to sort of like jump through because, you know, like I said, Mosquito Joe is owned by Neighborly. Neighborly is private equity backed. They're corporatizing a lot of things. So there's a little bit of a corporate vibe uh, around there, but like, I still feel like it's my business to run. I still have a lot of latitude. Um, and so, yeah, there are some things that are a little bit annoying, but like the, the pros outweigh the cons uh, big time. And I think, you know, one, there's two, the two biggest benefits for me are, um, one is just the owner's network. Like I've, we've mentioned this a little bit earlier, but like, I feel like the franchise owner's network is such a freaking cheat code. It's like, it's almost, I mean, I have people that are doing the exact same business that I am who know exactly what I'm going through and that aren't competitors and they're happy to share anything, right? It's, it's yeah. incredible. Like, you know, Neil, for example, you know, Neil bought the territory a few months after I did. We're both first year owners of franchise resales in Mosquito Joe. Him and I are texting all the time. You know, he picks up the phone to call me to be like, dude, 
terrible week. Listen to what my technician did, you know? And it's like, <laughs> awesome, right? Like, um, I have, like, like I said, I have the, some friends on a WhatsApp group that uh, I talk with all the time as well. And, you know, we, ha- we can share war stories about our different businesses, but they're very different, right? Um, yeah. And so it's, they can empathize, but they can't fully understand, just like I can't fully understand what they're going through. Um, but like the Mosquito Joe franchise owners have been amazing and, uh, and they come from all sort of like different walks of life as well. You know, there's younger guys in their, you know, 20, 20, late twenties, early thirties who are, have a W2 job and are launching a Mosquito Joe's territory and they're grinding. And then you have a bunch of owners that are sort of like second career type people, like my old owner who worked a, you know, corporate world for a long time and then like, you know, not ready to retire yet, but they wanted to do something else. And so they, they bought this seasonal company. And so they have a very sort of like different perspective, but it's just been incredible to have access to the owner group because everybody's super like, you know, willing to talk and, um, you know, share their best practices and their learnings. Um, yeah. So that's been, you know, that's been worth every hoop I have to jump through being in a franchise. Um, the second is, you know, Mosquito Joe is, is they've demonstrated themselves to be a really good franchisor. And, and one example of that is we had a customer reach out, um, sort of, they weren't accusing us of anything, but they were just really confused they're like look look at my plants like i think your spray is killing my plants like i don't know what's happening but this is like thousands of dollars worth of horticulture and now it looks like it's all dying and so like as a first year owner like i don't know enough about it like i don't think our like our spray is killing your plants but like you know i needed some talking points and so i emailed the pictures and i forwarded this guy note to mosquito joe corporate and like within two hours i had a response back from mosquito joe saying like this is not from our spray. We think it's X, Y, and Z. Like they can also do A, B, and C to sort of like follow up on that with this like horticulture group to like really identify what the species of, uh, I think it's like a grub or something like that that was like going after the plants. Boom, within two hours. And I was yeah. like, that's amazing. You know, so I was able to yeah. sort of like send that over to the customer and he, you know, felt better about things after that. But, um, yeah. you know, they were able to support you with areas where you really need support like that, uh, which has been priceless. One of the things that you said about that why, why people might not like franchises is are you are you really running your own business or are you running somebody else's business or it's not kind of you, you don't feel like you're fully autonomous? Respond to that now. Yeah, no, I, I do. Right, I mean, like, yes, we're there's certain parameters that I don't have flexibility over, but like, I do feel like it's it's my business. I have, um, you know. I have the opportunity to make operational changes and tweaks uh, to fit my sort of like territory and my operating style. And, you know, that's been really fun. And that's not like corporate driven, right? Like they'll give you a playbook for here's some best practices, but you don't have to use it, right? You can also like modify it as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm running my own business. I think, you know, there's even within a franchise network, there's still so many decisions you have to make as a small business owner um, that it can be overwhelming. But I'm super thankful that I don't have to think about certain decisions like what CRM am I going to use, right? Like I'm told what CRM to use and is it perfect? Like, no, but I don't have to think about like, should I change it? Like, should I talk to a bunch of vendors about seeing if we can get a better CRM? Like, I don't have to worry about that. I just have to work. I just have to learn about the nuances of the existing CRM and how to sort of like best manage it, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I I appreciate that there are certain decisions that have just been like, you know, um, given to you and like this is what you do right like they have a whole bunch of like print vendors that um i don't have to use but like they have all the mosquito joe templates and everything so it's really easy to like you know order with three clicks online with them or i can go through and like engage a bunch of other print vendors and like share with them the copies and go back and forth on proofs and stuff like that i could do that but like it's not worth the time for me yeah well in our pre-call you had actually talked about some of the improvements that you have made that you know you 
took advantage of your autonomy and made them. And so let, let's get into a few of those. Uh, one was about was actually about the the kind of nightly routine of printing the routes for the next day. So t- talk about what you did there. Yeah. So so routing is is super uh, important, like because you have to have tight routes, um, so your technicians aren't like wasting a bunch of time. They call it windshield time driving around between services. You want them to have as little driving as possible. Um, the challenge is I can set the route at 10 a.m. in the morning, but we send notifications to the customer the day before. And so we're getting responses all throughout the day into the evening about like, hey, tomorrow's not good for me. I have my landscapers coming or like I'm on vacation this week. Can you skip or, you know, things like that. And so there's constantly changes happening to the routing. So, you know, routing can't really be locked down until as late as possible. Well, what was happening in the beginning of the season was I had an office staff who was in the office and she would print the routes at like six o'clock you know, um, but then I was at home and I would see a bunch of changes come through over email. And so there's sort of like one of two things that can happen. We can stay with the old routes and then have to sort of like coordinate in the morning about like this person's a skip or like this person needs service, you know, between uh, 12 and two instead of nine and 10 or, you know, something like that, which is logistically kind of complicated. Or we can just print the routes in the morning once we've gotten through all the changes. And so um, you know, and also I didn't want my office staff to have to stay till the office till seven o'clock at night because she was printing routes and going through them, right? It wasn't a good use of time. And so I discovered a way where I could do all the routes at night at home. And then I would upload a file to a printer in the office. And then my head technician would come in in the morning and he will print out the routes um, in the morning, which is the, you know, which is the final basically. And then there's no more changes. Then he gives them to the technicians and they're out on the road. So it was a small sort of like operational tweak, but like, it saved a ton of time and sort of like, you know, headache and sort of like potential for miscommunication uh, between, you know, a change being made between 6 p.m. and, you know, 6 a.m. Um, when uh, when the routes were printed the night before. And was that something that you came up with or was that something that your you know, the somebody in the franchise network shared with you was their technique? Uh, no, I came up with that one on my own. And have you shared it with the other owners? Give them um, back to the network? I haven't yet. I think, you know, my situation is a little different because the um, the garage is about an hour from my house. So it's not close. Um, so I'm not in every day, actually. Uh, I have somebody in the office every day, but it's not always me. Um, and so I think a lot of the other owners, they just like take it upon themselves or like they'll like they'll stay until eight o'clock at night and print routes or they'll show up at 630 in the morning before, um, you know, the other guys get there and they'll print the routes. But like, I don't have that luxury. Um, and so like I was sort of like, forced by necessity to come up with a, a solution that worked for me. Um, and so I think this works really well. Yeah. Great. Good for you, Jesse. And what about the outsourced call answering, another operational improvement you put in place? So, um, yeah. So it was actually, this, this idea came from another business owner, a friend of mine who owns a, like a, uh, like a swim club and a, and a squash club um, nearby. And I was having breakfast with them one day and I was just explaining how um, you know, I had a couple of resources that, um, you know, we weren't getting a lot of calls certain times a day, but I had a person there just to, to be able to answer the phone. It was like kind of expensive. And, you know, he was sharing with me that he has an outsourced call center that um, is like answers 100% of his calls. Now, he's got much less sort of like call volume, but basically this outsourced call center is US-based um, experts on the phones that they support um, other, they, they support a bunch of, of different businesses. And uh, they're just like really good on the phone. And um, so he's like, you should like have a conversation with them. So um, before I had a conversation with them, I actually posted a position to try to hire somebody in my office to be there to answer phones and follow ups on leads. And uh, 
just the candidate pool was like really poor and uh, I was getting no showed a lot on my, you know, office staff job. So finally I was like, you know what? Uh, well, I had two things happen. One, I was frustrated by uh, the candidate pool. And two, one of my office staff was going on vacation for a month. Uh, she had this big vacation plan. So I was going to be down a person. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this outsourced call center and, uh, and see how it goes. And um, it's gone really, really well. So basically my phone in the office rings uh, three times. And then after that, it gets forwarded to the call center and they're able to pick up. Um, we worked on a script they can, that, that, so they know how to answer the phones. They have access to our CRM system so they can do basic things. Um, but the biggest you know, thing that they do is they'll just take messages and then they send it to us on Slack and then we're able to sort of like follow up on things. Um, so for, for year one, at least I'm calling this year one, I have somebody who will always answer the phone during business hours. So it never goes to voicemail, which is super important. And uh, they're able to do sort of like basic tasks, like take updated credit card numbers and do things like that. But I think for year two, there's a potential where I can train them to actually follow up on leads um, and do some other sort of follow up on leads, but also do do some outbound calls around um, reschedules, season opening, uh, things like that. And uh, which will be hugely beneficial because, you know, I've I've done the math a hundred different ways. And I think they're actually cheaper than having another sort of like full time resource in the office. Well, it reminds me of the kind of one of the tropes you hear about small business ownership and how uncompetitive it is, because as long as you just like return calls, you're, you know, in the top 90th percentile of, of small businesses. I, I think that, of course, is not very accurate and an overstatement of the reality, but it's probably something to it. There's definitely something there. Yeah, I think it's a little bit overstatement, but there's there's definitely something there. And I think, you know, uh, answering the phone is is uh, is super important. So yeah. I feel like if, the other thing about this call center is there's like five different people that I could pick up the phone, right? So it's not like if I miss it in my office, there's only one person. If she's on another line, then she misses it. Like there's five different people that I can pick up. And so I'm basically guaranteed that I'm gonna, it's going to get answered. Yeah, yeah. Jesse, one of the kind of interesting observations that you had about the nature of this business when we talked on the pre-call was in a, if you're going to be in a B2C business, uh, consumer business, you either are, if you're in home services, you're probably having your crews go into people's yards in your case or homes. Or if you were something else, a gym, a salon, a restaurant, or any anything where there's an office and consumers come to you, you can control your environment more. And, but then the general public is, you know, walking into your home as it were. So both of those <laughs> have cons to them, but what, what are, what is life like when you're sending out your crews into people's yards and, you know, there's just constant interaction between your, your team and the public in, you know, the very spaces that they're most protective of their homes. Well, I'm I'm really glad that we don't go into homes. Let's put it that way, because um, I have enough problems with only being outside the home. Um, I was like, I don't have a ring cam myself, but I was shocked at the percentage of our customers that have a ring cam, um, because our technicians are constantly being watched. And um, I get it, right? But it, it, this is the reality. And we tell technicians on day one, like, assume that everybody's watching you. Assume that everybody has a cam camera. Um, because they likely do, you know? Um, but I think, you know, even on the outside of people's homes, some people have elaborate gardens, some people have very particular landscaping. And, um, you know, we have some really detailed notes out of how, how to treat some people's houses, um, which becomes, you know, um, I have to be able to trust my technicians to actually be able to read notes and follow instructions, right? Like 
I've had a couple of very angry phone calls from people who had things sprayed that shouldn't have been sprayed, right? And it was in the notes and the guy missed it. And you have to sort of like, you know, just apologize and, and do the best you can, you know? Um, I think on the flip side, there are some people's yards that um, are an absolute disaster. And even though you come out to treat it, they still call you and they're angry because they still have mosquitoes. And it's like, well, you have like six, um, you know, old tires that all have water in it and we can't empty them out every time. Like you have to cut your grass, you know, things like that. Um, and so it's, it becomes really challenging, you know. Um, the one thing that I didn't anticipate or, you know, think about asking during the diligence process was, you know, how often is your service actually like disputed, you know, because I would say at least every week I get a phone call or an email or our office gets a phone call or email saying like, why did I get this invoice? You guys were never here. Mm. Or like, like, how do I know you were there? Like the guys are supposed to put a door tag on the door. They're supposed to put a flag in the ground to show that they've done it. Um, sometimes they just don't do it. Or sometimes like they put the door tag on and it blows off, right? And they can't find it. But like, mm -hmm. if you're not home and the technician doesn't um, make contact with you, like people will actually dispute the service because like, you were never here. Um, there's been a couple of, uh, you know, and if they have, a ring camera that becomes a little bit easier like because they don't show up on the cameras if they don't have a camera but there is nothing left it's like yeah like we can check the gps you know we have gps's in our truck so we can sort of like see where the truck was how long they were there and, and use that as evidence but um you know more times than i than i care to admit we've had conversations with customers around like were you guys even here how would I, how am i supposed to know if you actually did the spray yeah. you know and yeah. so that's been that's been challenging um we've we've thought about you know potentially taking a picture of the house every time or, you know, something like that, like something like Amazon does when they deliver your packages to ensure that like, yep, I was here. Here's timestamp. Um, I don't know if we'll actually do anything with that, but, um, you know, disputing the service was something I didn't anticipate uh, would have happened. That happens, yeah. you know, unfortunately too often. Jesse, one of the themes from my conversation with Neil Finneran was kind of what a dramatic pivot this was in his career to buy a Mosquito Joe franchise territory. He had worked in hedge funds and other kind of highfalutin, high finance roles in his career. And now it has a territory. And sometimes because he bought relatively small, he's actually the one out spraying. And so and he, he signed up for that. But it's, it's, of course, always interesting to hear somebody contrast uh, their, their now life with their previous life when, when there is such a dramatic contrast. So what about you? You come from corporate and you're now doing the same thing. So uh, are you ever out spraying? And then also just generally talk about what life feels like now. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely done my uh, done my stint in the truck. Um, you know, usually it's when somebody calls off day of or has to go home sick midday or, you know, something like that. And, you know, there's just an immediate need. And so if I'm in the office, I'm, I can fill it. Um, it's not, you know, it's not my preferred, but I think it's also like super important for me to understand what these guys are going through. And um, it's also important for me to understand like, hey, if I'm putting this many stops on your route and I think it should take you this amount of time, like, I should feel comfortable that I'm not asking them to do it too quickly or I'm not putting enough on their plate, right? So the times that I've gone out, and I've probably been out four or five times, um, it's been helpful for me to sort of like see the pace that I can work when I'm like, I'm textbook following exactly what they're supposed to do and I can tell you how long a spray is going to take. So if anything, it's been like a really good learning experience for me, but it's not certainly like, certainly not something I'm, I look forward to, right? There is a couple instances where I knew the guys had like really big days. I was in the office. I had some bandwidth. And so I was like, hey, guys, like I'm available to spray with you for a few hours. Like, let me know if you want me to help out. And guess what? There's no takers because nobody wants to work with the boss. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's normal. I don't take it personally. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, there's there's the actual 
spraying treating job, right? Which I've had to step up and do. There's the, the you know, actually answering the phones and responding to customers, doing lead follow up. Like I do more of that, but um, I still try to to only be like the escalation point on the phone and not the primary one picking up the phones. And um, I've done that pretty successfully, which has been which has been good. I think that you know the most value that I add right now is around the routing, because that logistical component is um, is uh, you know super important around making sure that the routes are dense and the guys aren't wasting their time driving around. And honestly, that feels kind of like corporate because I sit at home remotely and and do it all right. So there's not a whole lot different from there. Um, but yeah, it's I mean it's sure it's it's hugely different, but like I'm enjoying the learning. Um, I've just I've learned so much this year and um am thankful that there's been no like catastrophes, right? Knock on wood, I still have six weeks left. But there's been no real catastrophes and I've learned a ton and the business is performing well. So I'm just, you know, I'm having a good time. It it is giving me a lot of flexibility and um uh, I'm just, you know, I'm really happy with how things have worked out so far. Great. Uh, so you're basically feeling you're feeling pretty solid about life and about this decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't regret it for anything. And how do you feel about the SDE number that you acquired, Jesse? Because you you did lower your SDE threshold of what you were willing to uh, to buy from the five, six, seven hundred that we're all advised we should down into the threes, and that in fact is the size of business that you bought. How has that felt? Um, it's felt fine, right? Like if, I think if if anything else, it's more of like a uh, not like a shame thing, but it's like, like, oh, like, I don't want to be the guy that said, like, I bought a super small company, or it's like, oh, it's embarrassing mm. because I, my friends have bought like $700,000 SDE companies, you know, and I just bought this like little one. Um, if anything, I have like a mental block about it. Um, mm. But like, it's, it's felt fine. And once again, my wife is still working. She's still making, like, she's still the primary breadwinner. I've taken very little salary, you know, this year. Um, so her and I are, are, are more thinking about the next couple of years about like, okay, how much can Mosquito Joe grow? Um, should I focus on paying down debt or pay myself a higher salary? What's our sort of like immediate needs? Like I have some flexibility, which is good. Like I'm purposely not taking much of a salary to sort of figure out like if I want to plow it back into, um, you know, or, or keep it in the business and use it to pay down debt. Or if I want to, you know, if we have some immediate needs for our family, I can take a higher salary or something like that. So trying to figure some of that out, but like I have levers, I have flexibility and I, I do see a path if I don't acquire any other territories, I do see a, a path for growth in the next couple of years. But if I can acquire a couple more territories in the next three years, then I think I'll have a, a, a good good enough sized business where my wife could possibly quit her job and or take another job that um, you know, she would earn significantly less, but that she would have a lot more time and flexibility um, mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. And actually, Jesse, to your point about kind of being in your head about the size of business that you bought. That was one of the themes in your reflections uh, essay, circling back to that, that search is so personal. Don't waste your time comparing yourself to others. So just talk a little bit about the hazard of comparing yourself to others. That was actually a theme that was brought up on the the episode that aired today with Shane Ursum. So let's let's hear your perspective on that, please. Yeah, I, I just think it's not, it's not, I mean, look, everybody's going to do it. Everybody's human. But it's just not healthy, and it's not a good use of your time. And I think you'll you'll drive yourself crazy and get super depressed if you just look at other sort of like success stories or other people that are doing things that are you know uh, different or quote unquote better than you. You know, and uh, it's easy to get yourself like beat up and super down about it. So I mean, look, I fall into the same trap, right? Like, I don't I don't go around broadcasting like, oh, I bought something in the in the mid three hundreds SDEs. You know, like yeah, like that's you know once you pay down debt and stuff like that, like I probably was probably earning more in the corporate world. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, so that doesn't feel good, but I do think that, you know, 
this is not a, a one or two year decision, right? This is a literal lifestyle and career change for me. And so I think, you know, over the next decade, um, I have a lot more earning potential and uh, we'll walk away with, a lot, you know, I'll, I'll have an asset that's worth a lot more than anything that I would have had, uh, you know, continuing my W-2 job. And, and that's the most important thing to focus on. Um, and because like I said, it's personal. This is, you know, my wife and I's situation and what's what works for us. Um, yeah. And, you know, thinking about going public or, you know, something like really big, like it just is not a good use of mind share. I have enough things that, um, you know, I have to think about and consider. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also just reminding oneself of like, you know, what your, your own why was, which was flexibility before wealth. And, and if that was your goal, you've like, you're well on your way to achieving that already. And so that's, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to pick up my kids, uh, from the bus stop. Like I actually already have been picking them up from the bus stop since I've been back at school and I'll do that, um, probably for the rest of the year, uh, which is like super important for me. We don't have to have an after school babysitter because it's me and I can spend more time with them. And, um, you know, right now when they're really young, that's super important because they're excited to see me when they get off the bus, right? Like that's not always going to happen, but at least for now, yeah. I want to, you know, take advantage of that. Excellent, Jesse. Well, anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to make sure was said? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we had, we mentioned this in the pre-call. I don't know how relevant or how apparent it came out now, but like, I never had one of those, like on the floor of the bathroom moments th so far this year, right? Like I have a fetal position. Yeah. A fetal position. Never had one of those. But um, it is tough. It, it is really tough. And it's not for the faint of heart. And I think it's really hard to get a deal done, but it's also really hard to operate after the fact. And I think, you know, if there's anybody who's sitting there thinking about ETA or, or buying a business, like I would, I would probably say if you've never managed people before, um, I probably wouldn't want owning a small business to be your first experience managing people, right? Because people are by far the most difficult part of this, right? Like, the operational stuff, the system stuff is like, it's all easy in the grand scheme of things, but like it requires people to sort of like execute. And uh, if you're not a good coach, if you're not a good, um, you know, yeah, if you're not a good coach, if you're not a good leader on, you know, how to motivate them to, to do that, then like it's going to be an absolute disaster. And um, it's difficult. It's difficult. It does take an emotional toll on you. There's like, as a business owner, there's high stress, like the buck stops with you and you can never turn your brain off, right? Um, even in the seasonal business, I know I'm going to be thinking about mosquitoes and mosquito Joe in December, right? Even though I'm not operating, I know I'll still be thinking about it and it's not bad per se. It's just different. And you have to sort of like be, you know, be ready for that. Jesse, let me, let me follow up that, uh, thought with, can you give us an example of any of the kind of people episodes that you've had to get, to really give some color to this, this warning? Yeah. I mean, I won't, I won't, um, I won't get into specifics, but I would say like before you buy a business with blue collar workers, you should expect every single one of them to ask you for money. Um, like I had to come up with sort of like principles for, um, you know, uh, principles for lending money, you know, very quickly. Personally. Right? Personally. And so whether it's like, and more of it happened to be like, hey, like, you know, uh, can I get paid weekly instead of bi-weekly? I have an expense coming up or, you know, something like that. Like, one guy was like, hey, like, I need this money today. Can I pay it back over three paychecks? You know, something like that. So you have to sort of like deal with them on a, on a one-off basis. But like, you should expect everybody is going to ask you for money, right? And you need to help come up with principles for how you're going to handle that. Like I had one guy say like, hey, uh, my cell phone's going to get turned off. Can I, use my, uh, can I use my fuel card, you know, to pay for my cell phone bill and then I'll pay you back next paycheck. You know, like you need to prepare, prepare for those, right? Like I didn't think about that before, but like that's the reality. 
And so um, I, I was able to sort of like talk with other people and then come up with some like principles for that. But like, yeah, like those are tough. You know, those are tough yeah. conversations. Um, and Jesse, what, what are the principles? I mean, we don't need to do a deep dive, but just give, cause I'm, I'm just wondering, like, I have no idea. So directionally give us a sense yeah, of how I, this I think, is dealt with. I think for me, like it depends on one, the caliber of the employee and their sort of like integrity. Right. I think where I've, what I felt comfortable doing is if somebody has a need for money, I don't lend money. Um, like if you're like, I need a thousand dollars, like, I'm sorry, I won't do that. But like, if you need an advance on your paycheck and I know you're not going to run away next paycheck, like I'm open to doing that for the right people um in the right circumstances right so like if you need more than three paychecks to pay me back like sorry like that's that's too much exposure for me you know um there was one guy who asked for a loan who um i said no to but i said look your your mid-season bonus is coming up um you know three weeks from now i'm willing to give you that now as long as you don't leave and uh you know will that help and he was like very appreciative and it was a calculated risk on my part to know that like or to trust that this guy wasn't going to leave me in three weeks before he was eligible for his bonus. And he didn't. Yeah. So it worked out. Yeah. But I think that yeah. built some loyalty with him that I was able to do that because in my mind, it was money he'd already earned or already would earn. And I'm happy to sort of like front that for you, but I'm not going to get, get give you a loan and, and work on like a, uh, you know, a two year long pre repayment or anything like that. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I might have guessed that the, the guidance here is just, it's a hard no every time. But I guess, no, I guess you should be prepared to have some nuance and say yes sometimes and no others and set up conditions. Because that that means every time you get the request, you really have to devote mental en energy to thinking about how you're going to treat it. True. And it's I'm a little bit like being a hypocrite here. But every, every time this has come up with somebody, I said, look, I'm willing to do this, but like, do not talk about this. Like, do not tell anybody else. Like, this is between me and you, right? Um, now, I'm saying this on a podcast, so it's public. But, uh, you know, I, I tried to make sure that they were at least discreet with it. And if they're not, then like it's only going to go back and, you know, that'll do damage to them and their reputation if they are broadcasting it. Um, but I've, I've handled it, tried to handle it quietly with, you know, the limited number of times it's come up. But like it's been a limited number of times, but with, like three or four different people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's really, uh, that's, <laughs> I think a lot of people wouldn't expect that because that does not happen in the corporate world. Exactly, all, exactly. Yeah. Or even like, take a situation like this. We had a customer call in and uh, he said, hey, like your guy was here like way too fast. There's no way he could have completed the service. Um, and so our office staff was like, hey, like no problem. We'll just like, you know, we'll send the guy back and he can go, you know, spend some more time on your property. And so office called the technician and said, hey, can you go back to this guy's house? Like he said, you weren't there long enough. Can you just like do another touch up so he feels better about it? And the guy said, no, I was there long enough. What do you do? Right? Yeah. Like... Real situation that happened and um, we had to handle that separately, but like things like that will happen because yeah, like this is not the corporate world, like where people generally say yes and will, you know, do what they're asked. Sometimes they'll just say no and not do what they're asked and then you have to be forced to handle it. And how did you handle that one, Jesse? Uh, we pulled them aside and just basically said, look, like when the office asks you to do something, like it's, it's not optional. Like this is what you do. And if you can't listen and follow instructions, then like you don't have a place here. It's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. What else did you want to make sure that we touched on, Jesse? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the last thing, um, I think one of my biggest learnings and, and something I'm still sort of reflecting on now was I do feel like I gave up a little bit too much during the transition due to fear. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, I had some returning people that were coming back and um, there's a lot that I don't know. And so I feel like I can, I need to leverage them a lot for my learning and, you know, everybody's asking for a raise, right? Which is like the biggest thing. 
and um, uh, raise or like a separate sort of like arrangement. And, you know, there was one guy in particular who was super vocal about it or, or super pushy about it. And, um, you know, I wanted to say no, but I felt like I was so dependent on this person that ultimately before I ever worked a day with this guy, I caved and gave into his request. And um, because I felt like I couldn't, like he would walk if I didn't. And um, it feels like that was the wrong call now, now that we've worked together for long enough. And it's been fine. Um, but I feel like I was a little like, I should have pushed back more by saying like, dude, you can ask me that, but like, I've never worked with you. So like, no, like I can't give into this request, you know, but um, I didn't feel like I was in the position where I could have done that. But hindsight 2020, I probably should have pushed back more and say like, look, I totally get it and happy to reassess after X, Y, and Z time or, you know, something like that. But, um, you know, that was a call that I made, which I, I probably would have done differently if I could do it again. Well, the question here is like, is that generalizable advice? Maybe you have found out in retrospect that this guy, whatever his request was, ultimately wasn't worth conceding. But I wonder if it, it could have turned out the other way, that it was a good call. I'm trying to understand if that is something that you would generalize to people in the transition, you know, have confidence in yourself and say no a lot more, or just happen to be this way in this case. So there's another instance like, I mean, they asked for something different, but I did cave and it's worked out really well. Um, and so like, I, I just think that you do need to have, um, you should feel comfortable to go with your gut, right? In the beginning okay. and, and don't feel okay. like just because like you're going to get asked a thousand different things as a new owner and like you don't have to say yes to everything, I think is the biggest way that I could sort of like summarize it. Um, it's okay to say like, I need some time to think this over before I make any changes. Um, and that's And that's fine. And that's, you should feel comfortable doing that. One technique I've heard is when you come in on your day one speech, you basically just announce like no changes for six months, no raises for six months. Maybe it's not six months, maybe it's less, but you just kind of nip all of that in the bud. Now, I'm I'm not actually advocating this technique and, I'm, and I couldn't even point you to interviews where guests have mentioned doing that, but um, I do recall it. And so does that, how does that land on you? Does that feel like something that you could have done or that wouldn't have flown? So I didn't have a day one speech because when I closed on the business, uh, I had no employees, right? So everybody was right. laid off. So, right. um, you know, I, I, I don't think that's bad advice by any means. Like, I think that's fair to sort of like be transparent and, and say that to everybody so everybody can hear. Um, I think my situation was a little different because I had no employees and, you know, in the off season before they were employed by me, I had a couple of meetings with people and so I could sort of like meet them and, you know, I, I know that they were they were checking me out as much as I was checking them out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was fine. Um, and uh, yeah, I probably in those sort of like one-off meetings should have should have had something like that prepared where I talked about like, hey, like, you know, no changes for the first 90 days or something like that. Like, it's hard to say six months because that's half, that's like more than half yeah, my season. Yeah, your season. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's something I probably should have handled a little bit differently. Well, this has been great. You're uh, thoughtful as always. Uh, a really packed episode. Thanks a lot for coming back on, Jesse, to share with us uh, about your experience with Mosquito Joe. How, can, me, how do you prefer people reach out? Um, uh, two ways. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I think I'm at Jay Sunquist. I'm not as active now as I used to be, but they can find me on Twitter. Um, and then also you can just email me at jesse at mountsofia.capital, which was the LLC that I created when I started. And um, now I'm kind of stuck with because I, <laughs> I created it and I acquired with it. And now it uh, has nothing to do with mosquitoes, which is confusing for some people, but that's <laughs> what I'm using. So, Great. Thanks a lot, Jesse Sunquist. All right. Thanks, Will. <laughs>